our legendary rock and roll band who are still as heavy as ever performing the classic You Keep Me Hanging On. Please welcome Vanilla Fudge! <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we are going way back, back to the classic rock era of the late 60s. We're talking to Mark Stein, uh, lead singer and organist for that revolutionary hard rock band, Vanilla Fudge. So, uh, Vanilla Fudge, what they were doing back in the day was really revolutionary. They were taking, in the late 60s, pop songs like from the Beatles or the Supremes, slowing them way down, adding a ton of psychedelia, and really toughening up the sound. And it became what went on really to be a template for what we know to be hard rock. In fact, bands like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin were opening for them. And those bands have been very vocal about what an influence Vanilla Fudge was on them and their sound. But unfortunately, like a lot of hugely influential bands like the Sex Pistols or whatever, they don't last that long. They hit big in 1967 off their debut album with their version of You Keep Me Hanging On. It reached number six. But then their follow-up album called The Beat Goes On is a disaster. And Mark and I talk about that in here. Uh, it's really unfortunate. They put out a, lot, a few other way better albums, but the, the momentum never quite came back. And after the fudge ended, uh, Mark went on to work with people like Tommy Bolin and Dave Mason. In fact, he tells an unbelievable Michael Jackson story in here about when he was with Dave Mason. It, you, won't, you will not believe it. So, now Vanilla Fudge is currently back out there again. They have reunited and they've been doing this for years. And uh, they're right now headlining something called Hippie Fest, which is... It features other artists like Mitch Ryder and Badfinger and Rick Derringer, and they're playing a bunch of shows, mostly in the Eastern United States. They're not coming to Denver, I wish they were. Uh, he's also working on some solo material, which we talk about in here as well. Um, so anyway, I just thought it would be really interesting to hear from a guy who was, who was such a revolutionary figure in the history of hard rock, but maybe doesn't always get his due, you know? And we're purposely playing the version of You Keep Me Hanging On from their performance on Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Fallon from a couple years ago because we talk about that in here and what, that, what impact that had on, the, on Vanilla Fudge. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I really wanted to feature Vanilla Fudge on here for a while. I think they have a really unique story. He called me from his home in Florida. I wanted to start it out started off with this solo project that you're doing. I find it really interesting that you've been in this business for over 50 years and only now are working on your first solo project. 
What's the how did this, why is this happening now and what's the scoop? Well, Vanilla Fudge, you know, for the last couple of years it had been pretty lean with gigs and stuff and a lot of other guys were working on a lot of other projects. So, you know, I was talking to Robbie Krieger from the Doors. He has his own band out on the West Coast, you know, and I was saying, you know, Fudge can open for you. You know, it's our 50th anniversary of the Doors album and ours as well. You know, and he said, that's a great idea. You know, I'll talk to my manager who, you know, I knew very well too. So anyway, I started talking and I got off the phone with Robbie and I said, you know, well, you know what, what, why don't I start my own band, I mean, for once, you know? I mean, I, I played with a lot of people, you know? I've mm-hmm. toured with Alice Cooper, you know, I toured with Dave Mason in his heyday in the 70s. Sure. Uh, you know, I played with the legendary Tommy Bolin, and mm-hmm. he, you know, the young 25-year-old guitarist that passed on so young, but he was incredible and was, mm-hmm. you know, it was a very well-respected regime at that time in the 70s and progressive uh, fusion rock. You know, I... You know, I just last year I toured with the, I did a bunch of shows with Carl Palmer and with a comment with a you know tribute to Keith Emerson, you know, and very I, cool. Yeah, it was real cool. I did a bunch of shows with him, and you know, I've been on stage. You know, I mean, how many keyboard players played Smoke on the Water with Deep Purple? I'm probably you know as a guest, probably I'm the only one. You know, <laughs> very <laughs> so, nice. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, none of the iconic Vanilla Fart stuff, and uh, I had this idea, you know. Why don't I do a, like a complete, you know, tribute to classic rock history? You know, because I've mm-hmm. been a part of it. You know, so that's yeah. what I did. I started thinking about what songs I could do, and uh, I called up, you know, Margot Lewis from TCI, a good friend, who is now my agent, and she, you know, got her into it. And one thing led to another. We had a couple of conference calls, and I put the band together. She started getting some gigs. It was interest, and and you know, uh, it's been it's been a great start you know we played bb kings uh we played bb kings on the 30th of january we did daryl's house uh nice you know uh and and bull run i know steve miller came down to see me at bb kings with with janice his wife we've been friends for a long time he he really loved the band and daryl hall himself came to daryl's house to see the band and 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 you know we we i gotta say this band is is really really great so i really that's great it's really terrific but, I, got, I, mean, uh, I find it really, I mean, this can't have been the first time in 50 plus years this has ever occurred to you to put out a solo album. I mean, I know The Fudge has been very successful, but the, the band has been largely off and on. You know, you'll have periods where you're very active and periods where you're not. Yeah, and yeah. And you've done all these other things. Why now? Why is now the time for the Mark Stein solo album? Because, uh, because now is the time. You know, um, it just is. Okay. It just, it just is. Well, I was ready, but I, you know, in the past I, I tried to do stuff, but I, I couldn't get enough, you know, I couldn't garner enough interest. Oh, you know? okay. And uh-huh. and uh, you know, and but now it's I don't know, it's just starting to happen now. That's great. Oh, so I mean, great. I'd rather do this than sit on the couch and die of old age, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So what's the uh, what's the release plan for this? When are we going to see something that we could get our hands on? Well, we're in the process of doing more shows. I'm playing Westbury with MSP. I call it the Mark Stein Project. We're playing Westbury okay. with the Yardbirds. It was a great gig on you know, May 6th, and we're working on some other stuff. And, and I'm working on an EP right now with some new songs I've been writing over the last year. I'm almost done with that. And we're going to okay. get some, some deals in Europe. And here that are interested, so we're going to bring that to market. And, 
you know, it's a, it's all yeah. looking real real uh, real positive right now. Oh, you know? great. And, uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's been really good. So it sounds like it's mostly at this point more of a touring entity than maybe working on a full fledged album. Although that's well, probably it's both. Well, it's a, it's a, okay. it is. It's a touring entity, but yeah. I've, again, I've had tracks in the can, but I'm that I'm finishing up mixing, so I'm planning to right. integrate the integrate them both. You know. Yeah. Why are the fudge on? I don't know if you're on hiatus. I don't know if you if everyone's you know busy doing other things. What goes into you know, why does the fudge slow down, I guess is what I'm wondering. I, I don't know. The band, oh, really? every time we go out, we, you know, we kill it. People love yeah, the band. Of There's not yeah. one show that they're not standing. I I, yeah. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, okay. a, lot of the, a lot of the promoters, I think, are really young, and, and they're, not, they're not hip to, uh, you know, the late 60s kind of symphonic rock. I don't know, man. It's uh, yeah. it's, it's That's been like a, a mystery, really, but... Uh, huh. You know, your guess is as okay. good as mine. It's just that, okay. uh. I didn't know if guys, you know, I didn't know if like Carmine had something else going on or, you know, they, uh. Well, that's also been a, that's all, that's, yeah, that's also over the years, that's also been a little bit of a hurdle at times too. That's kind of gotten sure. in the way of, uh, keeping momentum going. It has been times when agents had to dance around the dots and then they said, well, you know what, you know, next, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not I totally, guess. but you know, you brought it up, so. <laughs> no, I know. Well, this is that's why I call this podcast the hustle, is because I'm talking to people who, you know, over the long course of time, have to keep their their careers going and hustle for gigs and and their it never stops. And yeah, it never stops. It. Yeah, no, yeah. No, people yeah. forget. Yeah. I well, I just of, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, speaking of forgetting, uh, the one and only I I. It was massive for me seeing you guys on Jimmy Fallon a few years ago. Yeah. Because I'm fairly young. I'm only 44. And so I've never, to my knowledge, been in a position where I could see Vanilla Fudge in concert. I live in Denver. I don't know how often you guys pass through here. Um, I played that often, but, you know. Well, yeah. I I would go if I knew that it was happening. And and so that's the one and only time. And that, that performance was electric. And I'm curious, what was it, what was the aftermath of that? Did you was there a sense, at least for a while, there of sort of a new wave of interest? Yeah, well, that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying yeah. to obviously cause a fresh buzz, and you know, maybe for a week, <laughs> I was uh-huh. trying to get I was trying to get the fudge into a higher agency, and I was hustling out. I was calling up bigger agencies that booked bigger bands, and I had them watch the show and. Yeah. Yada yada yada, and you know, and, uh, and I don't know, man. Nothing really happened from it except. It's just part of our uh, resume, you know. Oh, that's which weird. Can, which, which is kind of cool because people yeah. still dig it. But what did happen was Carl Palmer saw me singing, and he, you know, he said, "Man, Mark sounds really good. I, I really want him to do this thing with me." So, so that didn't hurt, you know. Okay. How did this right. even happen? Did Jimmy Fallon's people contact you and say, "We want you to come on the show"? Did something? Did your people go to them? How did it even work? I think. Uh, used to, uh, by the way, think... be a lot more open to having kind of. Older classics. I remember Ambrosia was on there. Right. Do a lot of yacht rock bands. How did this work for you? Well, I think Leslie Gold is going to call my girlfriend. You know, she was like, uh, you uh, know, really great on Fox Radio. She had a connection there, and cool. uh, I think uh, she had a. It was kind of in the air, and she, you know, she had she helped us get on there, and uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. You know. Okay. Okay. Well, let's yeah. go back to the beginning. I want to talk about. I mean. You guys are side. I th- I've been thinking about you guys so much lately and getting ready to talk. And I feel like you guys are sort of in some ways like the Dr. J of rock in the sense that, you know, 
Dr. J came along at a time when athletes weren't being paid, you know, millions and billions of dollars. Yeah. And he was doing something amazing. And then Michael Jordan took what he did and blew it up even more. Yeah. And so people forget that there would be no Michael Jordan without a Dr. J, who was a legend in his own right. And I kind of feel that way about Vanilla Fudge. I that's, feel like a, it, that's a nice way to put it. You know what I mean? I mean, you guys are kind of legends in your own way, but because other bands kind of took what you guys were doing and went, I don't know, they got bigger or more famous or sold more records or whatever, the spotlight tends to go to them. Even though, thankfully, people like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin consistently recognize you guys as right. you know, influences to them. Yeah, no doubt, yeah. So I'm curious, when you guys come together, I mean, a band like Vanilla Fudge, did you decide early on, you know what, guys, we're at our best when we're covering other people? How did this, how did this become like your, your thing, you know, your, the thing that makes Vanilla Fudge different? Well, the thing is, when, well, when I was a kid, you know, I was 18 years old and you know, getting exposed to the New York rock scene back then, and uh, I went to see. It all started really with the Rascals, you know. If you, when you, you know, you saw the Rascals with Felix Cavalieri and Gene Carnes, Eddie Brigatti, and uh, Dino Danelli. You know, if you went to see them in a small club, being 18 years old, and I was just memor mesmerized by that band, mesmerized by Felix Cavalieri and his. I never saw a B3 Hammond like up to, up close like that, and I mean it was ice. Every chance I could, I'd get a scotch and soda and sit as far close to that, you know, spot or six as I could. And yeah. seeing him sing his ass off, I mean, he was the most soulful dude. He was a tremendous inspiration for me in my youth, you know. Mm -hmm. It's because of him that I got a ham, that I had to go out and get a ham and organ, a B3. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it was that blue-eyed soul thing. But then it was another band called The Vagrants that spawned uh, Leslie West. The first time I saw a band taking songs and, and they were called production numbers and they slowed them down and created all this drama they were doing like exodus and they were doing like if i was a carpenter and all these songs i was mm -hmm. so blown away when i saw that i've never seen anything like it it changed my life okay i went home that night i said i was just it was a mind it was a, like a life-altering experience i said this is what i want to do you know i wasn't writing songs at the time this was the trend this was the long island big sound you know mm -hmm. So I just went to work, and I, my, you know, my creative juices started flowing, and I started kind of coming up with all these keyboard and symphonic ideas for the band, and um, and uh, you know the drama that we had at the time. We were called the Pitchkins, you know, <laughs> and uh, he was good. He was a good drama, but he was more of a straight-ahead guy, and he didn't sing. So me and Timmy and Vinny, you know, we knew we had to get a really good drama that could sing as well to accomplish yeah. what we wanted to do. So. You know, we went and saw Carmine playing at this club, you know, the Choo Club in Garfield, New Jersey, with Dean Parrish and Thursday's Children. Mm. And this guy was like, blew me away. You know, I never mm -hmm. saw anybody with such power and funk. And mm -hmm. so I got him aside. We took him outside in the cold, and we, I told him what we wanted to do and the concept was. And he said, "Yeah, it sounds great. I'm in." Just like that. So a week later, my dad set up a rehearsal in Bayonne, New Jersey, in the back of a bar. And we started playing, and he called up uh, Philly Basile at the auction house, and we got an audition. <laughs> I mean, a week or two weeks later, we were playing, you know, at the auction house in vagrant country. And, you know, and it was like, really? you know, yeah, it was a vagrant country. They were the superstars of the local scene, and we were just okay. kids starting out. So it, we kept hammering and hammering, developed our arrangements, developed that sound. And then, you know, I was sitting in front of the cheetah. 
and 66 and Diana Ross and Supremes comes on the radio. Incidentally, that's part of my show right now. We put the radio on before we do oh. keep hanging on and, they, and I'm searching for the radio and all of a sudden it comes on clear over the PA system and, and Diana Ross and Supremes comes on, we keep hanging on. And I say, well, wouldn't that be amazing if we slowed this song down, man, and put some symphonic stick to it? And like, Why don't we do it like this? And then I go into it, and the people go wild, you know, with my band, you know. It's oh, really great. cool. It's a, it's a very cool moment. And that's how that happened, you know. I, yeah. I come up with these ideas. Let's slow it down. And we, and Vinny had an amazing raga, you know. Guitar yeah. intro, Carmine and Timmy were awesome with their rhythm section ideas. We put it together. We knew we had something really special. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, man. We went in and cut the thing in one take with Shadow Morton and Ultrasound and uh, Mirror Sound Studios in New York City, I guess around 66 or 7, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And it went on a radio show at a competition. I forgot was the Beatles were on there. We came in number one. Everybody freaked out over the sound. Ahmed Erdogan freaked out at Atlantic. One thing led to another. He got signed. Before you knew it, we're in the studio. We do this album. The first time it was out, it I mean, it was the first album that hit the top ten in Billboard without his single because mm-hmm. Keep Hanging On was re-released, you know, a year later because the first time it was released, it died. It didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was uh, before its time. So they re-released yeah. it 18 months later and went to number yeah. one on most playlists. But that album was uh, was groundbreaking. It, we were we yeah. were ha- we were lucky enough to uh, be part of the advent of underground radio who could play long versions like AM radio. You had to have a three minute single, otherwise they're not going to play at that time, you know. Right. So right. we were lucky that we were the darlings of underground radio in LA and you know New York and That's San Francisco incredible. and that, that. Yeah, it just launched just yeah. launched the band in a huge way and uh, and um, that's how that groundswell started and okay. before you know it we're wet behind the ears kids and we're cracking the center of the pop music universe man <laughs> you know opening for the mamas and the papas the coliseums I mean it, the whole thing was like it just happened so fast yeah know? now is there like a vault somewhere that can, that is full of recordings of other covers you guys did and decided weren't good enough to put on your album because I'm, I, you know, I'm curious how you decide to pick. And if you're thinking, let's do covers, you did you try like 20 and narrow narrow it down to seven for the album, and those other 13 are sitting somewhere? Well, we, the first album was basically our road show, you know, because we played a lot up and down the East Coast. So we were so tight, you know. That was yeah, that was it. You know, going forward, uh, you know, when we try to survive that ridiculous beat goes on release, yeah. which destroyed our momentum. Uh, it's all in my book. I, my book, You Keep Me Hanging On, The Raising Story of Mock Rock Media's Golden Age. It's all documented and uh, how that okay. evolved and uh, how the whole thing happened. But, yeah, anyway. Uh, that was going to be my next question. Um, yeah. Yeah, that beat goes on. I, I had never heard that album until recently, and it's tough. That's a tough one to sit through.
Butterfield. Yeah, I mean, it was my producer's idea. It was his ego, you know. He even yeah. missed it in the interview with my book. Got him on God Rest His Soul. He was honest about it. Yeah. But you know what? All, all the small money went with it at the time. You know, in retrospect, how could they have possibly allowed that to go out? All we had to do was put out the same thing we did the first album, no, and we would have been twice, and we would have been so huge. Yeah. You know, and if we weren't writing songs, so we'd do it like everybody else did. The Elvis Presleys and the Frank Sinatra's and all the other, you know, the Cynthia Wilde and Barry Mann songwriters and, uh, you know, Carol Kings and all the, would have written songs for us. So we would have yeah. had songs written. So what? You know? But yeah. we didn't do that. In retrospect, it's so clear. 2020, you know? Yeah, no kidding. So we did start yeah. writing songs. We tried to recover from that difficult album called Renaissance. And, uh, yeah. that's, you know, when it went, yeah, it went up to, yeah, I don't know, tough, tough 25 or something. never quite recovered from no. from that from that you know i gotta say near the beginning i think it's probably yeah. your next best album i like right. that a lot so, yeah that was live Shotgun, at the shrine such a great cover and uh and, velvet um, morning velvet morning yes that's yeah that, that's magical because we used to do that on yeah. stage people would yeah people would really be mesmerized you know yeah. really i'm just saying it just it was really a, a nice thing to do you know yeah yeah, there's some great stuff in there. How come five albums in three years, and then that was it? Were you guys sick of each other? Were, we got sick of each other. Carmen, Carmen and Timmy wanted to go elsewhere. They wanted to rock more, and Vanilla Fudge, frankly, without any more. We didn't progress. So, you know, also, you know, in ret- you know, retrospect, it was basically a, a one hell of a one-trick pony, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. You know what I mean? Wow. So, uh, but... Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, okay. so... In all honesty, well, I'm, uh, well, I'm honestly, what you were going to say, I cut you off. No, I'm being honest. I mean, it's like, yeah. uh, you know, it's a band that could have been a hell of a lot bigger, but, uh, yeah. But you know what? Not, but, you know, we still managed to keep, uh, touring over the years. We had some good runs and, uh, right. Audiences still dig it. And, you know, we're one of the, I think we're just one of the fathers of, uh, the psychedelic symphonic sure, rock. Totally. And we, we did, uh, like I say, we'd, there'd probably be no Deep Purple without Fudge, or maybe even Absolutely. Yes, Yes, or I don't know. Yeah. A lot of bands, uh, a lot of bands, uh, said some real good things about us, you know, so. What did you hear in the Hammond organ that was so magical to you? Because I've heard Steve Winwood talk about similar things. He, you know, he was a master at that as well. Yeah. And to me, that, I, I mean, I love the Hammond, but to me, it's more like an accent. It's more like, uh, a little bit of spice that you would dabble on something, although well, you made it no, lead into yeah. it, basically, and killed it. 
Well, why the ham is, that, is, why uh, is it so magical to you? Well, because it's, it's you know, I approach like an orchestra, you know. Oh, really? You know, with colors and dynamics and, uh, you know. And yeah. You, you know, it's a great solo instrument. It's a great, uh, you know, orchestral instrument. It's all how you approach the instrument. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's uh, I just had a natural flair for it. I really wasn't that good of a player in the beginning. I mean, in the first album, I was only playing it for... Maybe I don't know. Maybe a year, but oh, I was really? fortunate. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to. I, I was just creating like effects and colors with it that was so attractive to the sound in those days, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, as the years went on, I uh, you know, I got more involved in my musicianship and uh, yeah. Okay. Became pretty uh, adequate, or some yeah. people say more than that. <laughs> right now, no but, kidding! You're a legend at it. Yeah. So were you? I mean, were you? Are you much of a songwriter i mean and i know that that sounds ignorant i know that you write plenty of songs on no i uh i've, I've been writing songs i mean this is the early days of my career but over the last you know 10 years i have been writing songs yeah there's a popular song called let's pray for peace that i've been playing for live audiences around the world and it's uh oh, really In fact, I just played it on the Rock Legends cruise just last week. Oh, cool! You know, and the okay. people, uh, the people, uh, you know, it was just awesome. You know, it's like an acoustic piano string thing with the guys playing some acoustic. But it's the message, unfortunately, is always relevant. You know? Yeah, yeah, it sure is. So because when because um, if I listen to like you were, I think you were kind of touched on this a minute ago. If you listen to Renaissance, which is that. You know, kind of the third album that comes out after it goes on to hopefully sort of right the ship a little bit. Right. That one is less covers and more of your the band's own original music. Well, it's all original music, except for the season of the witch was in the camp yeah. from the first album. Okay, yeah, that's what I yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but that is that the did someone come to you and say you know how we're going to fix this? You guys start writing your own music or. Um, what was the thinking behind that? Because it would almost be the opposite. Well, we had this great success with this with this album of covers. Let's go back to what made us successful in the first place. Was that not the idea? Well, you know, we were in a desperate situation. We knew we had to come out with something to try and erase okay. that mistake, you know, okay. which, yeah. which never was totally erased. I mean, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I just started woodshedding and writing songs. Everybody would start okay. collaborating and writing songs, and we had to get something out there as fast as we could, and uh, that was the uh, residue that was what you of that, had. you know? Okay. 
Hey gang, let me break in here for a minute. I feel like we have, I haven't been thanking people as much as I used to. Um, not because I'm not extremely grateful, but because it tends to be the same kind of core fans of ours week after week that um, I'm giving thanks to. But I didn't want to any of those people to feel forgotten about. So let me just throw out some names of people who've been sharing or retweeting our posts from last week especially. Uh, the Music Diversity Protection Program. I don't know who they are, but they've suddenly found us and have been sharing our episodes. It's great. Anthony Porter, Derek Johnson, Carrie Carlson, Sonny Pooney, Save Rock and Metal, Paul Hicks, Popcast, I see Greg, Jason Simons, Gregory Ray, and Mike Wagner are just a few of the people who, you know, core to our uh, fans and our listenership. I am so grateful for all of you, and thank you for all the th- for all the sharing and and furthering the good word of the hustle. We're really appreciative. Also, something else relating to this interview that I wanted to mention. Uh, this one was done a few months ago, and in between the time it was done and now. Kanye West's new album has come out and he sampled Vanilla Fudge on his new album. And I wish I had known that back when I did this interview with Mark because I would have for sure brought that up. But I think that's a really interesting, you know, current cultural touchstone that Vanilla Fudge is sort of back in the zeitgeist a little bit. Um, You know, not all samples are, you know, mentioned or even thought about, but it was prominently placed on Kanye's album and got them some attention, and I just thought that was really special. So anyway, good for Vanilla Fudge. Also, we have a couple new reviews I wanted to read on iTunes. Thanks to everybody who writes any reviews. The Facebook ones are great. The iTunes ones, I think, are a little bit better, just because it helps to steer people to the uh, to the podcast, helps them find it, which is the, the whole point here. Anyway, Flash Fan number one gave five stars, The Other Side of Music, John somehow manages to get the best out of his guests to show his audience the good and ill of the music business. Short and sweet. Thank you, Flash fan. I appreciate that. Uh, And then one more. Five stars. This is from Keith11464322. All right. Love this addition to my podcast rotation. The idea is awesome, as is the subject. I love listening in on these conversations with these folks. My only issue, here we go, is times when the host seems to get too into the conversation and tends to speak over the guest, which happens a bit too uncomfortably in the Joe Puerta episode. Otherwise, totally awesome podcast. Uh, Well, thank you, Keith numbers afterwards. I, um, yeah, this, I, at this point, first of all, thank you for the five stars and thank you for the kind words. I've, as regular listeners for a long time know, I've been working on that. I uh, think I've gotten better. I didn't necessarily even notice it on the Joe Puerta episode, but it likely happened. At, at this point, I don't really know what to say about that other than I am who I am and I like my style and I'm not really, you know, these. that's why I call these more conversations. And just like when you have a conversation with a person, people tend to over talk over each other. It's really difficult over the phone. I, um, I just do the best I can and I'm comfortable with my style and my approach and where I'm at. I think most of the time these interviews are unique to the guests, they're unique for the listeners and uh, I'm comfortable with that. So I don't know what to say. I don't know that I'll get any better than I am today and if that's a problem then I don't know. Just, uh, sorry, 
sorry is all I can say. I want to mention some uh, requests we've gotten recently. Jeff Kennedy sent over a couple recently. One was the Lounge Flounders. I've never even heard of them. Um, So I'd have to do some digging. I I, I mentioned this to him, and you guys kind of know this too. I've sort of slowed down on the requests a little bit just because I've got so many of my own um, interviews in the works and ideas out there. The ones where it's someone I don't even know are difficult because I'm not, you know, I don't have like a long history to fall back on or to tap into with some of these people. And that's when I feel more emotionally attached to the guest and involved in the in the conversation. So I don't know, it probably helps if I know the band, I would probably, you know, lean toward that one quicker. Another one that he mentioned, which I thought was great is Sixpence None the Richer. Um, I like those guys and I've always been curious about them myself. And so I think I might have to look those one those guys up. That's a really good idea. Another one, uh, listener James Milton suggested the band Toy Matinee, which is a name I barely recognize because I was working in a music store, Musicland, in the Cottonwood Mall in 1990 when that album came out. And I've never heard from them since. And that makes sense because apparently it was basically two people, one of whom is dead, and the other is the fairly successful producer, Patrick Leonard. And he's somebody I've had in mind to get on here anyway. So uh, that's a really good idea. I'm going to see if I can track down Patrick Leonard, and then we can talk about his whole career. You guys know I love talking to producers because you just go right down the resume and hear all the stories. Uh, Toy Matinee would be one of those stories. So that's a really good idea. And then one more, Keith Rateliff. Um, Maybe Keith is the guy who left that... uh, left the uh, comments. If so, thank you, Keith. Anyway, he threw out some suggestions as well. Uh, Members of Concrete Blonde, who, they're another band. You would think I would be a big fan of theirs, and I'm really not. I mean, I like a couple of songs, but they never did it for me. That doesn't mean I wouldn't want to interview them. I'd love to interview them. But for whatever reason, I never warmed up to Concrete Blonde too much. Uh, Sparks, uh, Gang of Four, Paul Weller, Those are all excellent ideas. I would love to talk to Paul Weller, especially. In fact, I've mentioned this before. I've tried to get the other guys from the jam on here, and it looked like it might have happened about a couple of years ago, and then I think their publicist quit or something. So I I need to pick that back up, and I just haven't done it yet. But anyway, those are some suggestions. I like those a lot. So let's get back to Mark. Um... Now, we try to cover sometimes kind of the business side of things sensitively on here. And uh-huh. um, I, um, you know, obviously, Keep Me Hanging On is a, is a cover. So you're, but, so under normal circumstances, if you're having a hit with a cover, the writer of that would get most of the royalties. You would get more of a performance royalty. Exactly. But you made that song your own. I mean, the bones of Keep Me Hanging On might be there, but you flesh that out in a completely different way. It, under those circumstances, and I've never had anyone on where I could even ask this question, uh-huh. are the are the royalty st- royalties structured differently because of that? No, because at the time that that that, that didn't that wasn't that didn't come into play. Okay. Holland Dozier and Holland made a fortune off that song because it was the only it was the only song that's been in the top ten in Billboard three different times. Oh wow. You know, yeah. and uh, it's pretty amazing. But uh, as the years went on, there were situations where you could copyright arrangements, you know, and mm. and trying to do it retroactively became really, you know, difficult. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, I can you imagine. Know? And 
But uh, I don't know if that answers okay. the question. But no, it does. I mean, that's. I'm just trying to kind of get a feel on, as to whether you can live off royalties from a hit like that, or if it's if it's easy or if it's hard. I mean, I, I get all different kinds of stories on here. No, we're not living off the royalties. Believe me, off of that. I mean, yeah. some, once in a while they'll use it. You know, like they use it in, uh, like on Mad Men, they use it as a mm-hmm. claim of a big, on that great TV show, they use it as a, you know, as a big show. Uh, yeah, it was like I the, the la- it was like the last, uh, the last section of the show was, it was the first, you know, the first segment of that last show, which was, caused a lot of noise. So we got a nice licensing fee for that. It's licensing at that point. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. And then, and then they used it in, uh, that movie, uh, War Dogs, which was out last year. Oh, I didn't see that. That's good. Yeah, it's mean, a pretty okay. fun movie actually about you know oh. about the two guys that sold the on the internet they found a way to make a lot of money uh, selling yeah. to the military all the rifles and shit. Yeah, we're in War Dogs, which good. was pretty cool. So that was okay. a nice licensing fee. And then I don't know, it's on uh I was on something else, a uh, bunch of stuff. It's picked here and there and I, you know, okay. That's yeah. good. I'm just curious what the breakdown is. Um, yeah, I mean, nobody's getting rich off it, but it's you know comes in handy, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what? Um, so okay, so you end Vanilla Fudge comes to an end, and you go off and start working with Tommy Bolin. I mean, I know there's other people, but I'm picking kind of like the the highlights. And, right. Uh, but it's still like five years before Private Eyes that album comes out. Are you touring with him? What no, it wasn't. Five, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it was. Oh, the five years before that. Yeah. Oh I well. Think it was boomerang. I forget. You put out. Yeah, that was that yeah, right. That boomerang. Boomerang was like a, it was a rock band that was sure. kind of inf- was influenced by like you know Deep Purple or uh, Led Zeppelin type of stuff, and I, I really thought that that thing was gonna you know I mean and it, it's got a five star review everywhere, but it, mm-hmm. it 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 was just ill fated, you know. Really? The best, the best, yeah. Nothing happened with it. I mean, it's really huh. cool record. But we opened for Emerson Lake and Palmer at the Providence Arena, okay. you know. Which was cool, and that was the first time I saw these things called synthesizers. I walked up to Keith's keyboard rig, and I was scared shit. I never saw modules and keyboards, and yeah, I tell this on my stage show, by the way. Okay. And it's awesome, you know, and uh, it was just the most amazing thing I've ever seen when I saw them perform. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So what happened then with Boomerang? And when you go into Boomerang, is this like your next big venture? You're thinking, yeah, that was, yeah, right. I'm going to leave this new band. We're hot. 
and it's very much more of like a bluesier southern rock type jammy sound. Well, no, um, again, uh, we did some shows and uh, it petered out. It just never got any legs, you know. Uh, and plus, and it was also common and Timmy had cactus, and my man, we managed him by the same people, so it was, you know, kind of one went one way and one went the other way at that time. So, yeah. uh, so I just, frankly, after that was over, I had enough. You know, I yeah, got really disgusted. With the business, I got uh, married. I went through some political weird shit that was going on, some scary stuff with management. I just got away for a while, you know. Okay. Did and, you get uh, away from music? Like you left music and go get a? Did, did you have you no. ever had to like go get a regular job? No, I didn't. At that job? time, no, I I didn't. I was just okay. I was just I was just calling. I was just chilling out. I never got yeah. away from music. You know. Okay. That was always okay. in my in my eyesight for sure. Yeah, you know? sure, okay. I got. What I started. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, what I started doing was I started. I wanted to be like Elton John. Ah. You know, I started became a. You know, so I started getting my piano chops together, not working piano chops, and I, that's when I started writing songs. So I moved okay. to California. I moved out to LA. Me and Patty, my wife, we moved out. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to try and get a solo deal as a solo artist, and I want to get away from this whole fucking New York scene, except my language, you know. That's okay. We're being honest here, so. Sure. At the time. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, um, so I parked myself in Southern California, and I started writing songs. I tried selling my songs, and I did that for a couple of years, and, you know, I got close to getting some big covers that didn't work out. And I said, you know what? Time to get back on the stage. I heard about this guy, Tommy Boland. He was just the hottest guitar sensation coming out of the purple, you know, in the James Gang. And I started a band, me and uh, Reggie McBride, the bass player from Stevie Wonder's band, and Bobby Cochran, who was in Steppenwolf. So okay. the, three of us, the three of us started rehearsing. We were going to, you know, and uh, get another bass player. And as we were doing it, this all happened with Tommy Ball, and then Jersey went down. He got the gig, and I said, "Dude, you know, get get me down to SIR. I want to be in this band." So yeah, yeah, so one thing led to another, and it happened, you know. Yeah. And so I got together with Tommy Ball, and, and Narda Michael Walden joined the fleet, and Norma Jean Bell from, you know, Narda was fresh out of Mahavishnu Orchestra, and uh, yeah. Norma Jean Bell was a great sax player and singer right out of Frank Zappa's band. So that was a hell of an eclectic bunch of musicians. Okay. Tommy, yeah. Now, to, was Tommy, I would have to think Tommy would be especially keen on having you join since he was in Deep Purple, and Deep Purple is basically an extension of Vanilla Fudge. No, yeah, that no sort question. Of a circular no. moment here? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. That was a seminal moment, without a doubt. Yeah. And, we, yeah. and we, it was a natural blend, you know, with the, with the way we both played. Right. Well, I don't know what we're 
No, that was it. We went out and started causing a big buzz in L.A. and around the country playing these gigs. And then, you know, Tommy just, you know, couldn't overcome his demons. And uh, yeah, just, he just got worse real quick. And, you know, he passed on at the age of 25, you know. Tragic. And you, I mean, tragic. not to take anything away from that moment, but selfishly for yourself, you probably are pretty frustrated. You've just joined a band that you feel really good about and is going to be sort of your new lease on life. And just like that, it's over, right? Yeah, pretty much. That was pretty fast. But uh, I had left the band before that last tour where we died, you know, I, because uh, he was becoming, I, you know, it was getting very difficult at the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I just huh. said, you know, I, I just I just can't deal with this anymore. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, man, I was just... Just okay. left, and then yeah. when, I, when he went to Miami on that last tour, uh, I found out he uh, he passed on on the road, you know, from terrible, you know, from uh, overdose some little stuff, you know. Right. Were drugs uh, ever a big part of your life? They were. were I had they? a I, I, yeah in the early days I was yeah I had a problem with the uh, blackbirds and diet pills, you know. It started out sure. because I wanted to be a skinny rock star and. Sure. I always had a weight problem, so I started getting addicted to it. And yeah, that was a, I had a problem with that. You know, I've talked about mm -hmm. that, but I, but I overcame it. I mean, 1970, sure. 71, uh, that was the end of it. You know, I was oh, lucky wow. to survive. That was a long time ago. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it was, I was just, I was just a, a child of the times, you know. I mean, there was, yeah. there was a lot worse going on than what I had going, you know. Of course. So, yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, everybody um, was smoking weed all the time, so that was that was the generation, you know. That was the way to do it, yeah. Okay, yeah. we got to talk about Dave Mason, um, Old Crest on a New Wave. I, yeah, I really man. I like that album. Yeah, and, why wouldn't uh, you with Michael Jackson singing on it? Well, that's what I want to know. That's I know you want to know that. I was I was recording. Ever. I was recording at Hollywood Sound in L.A., and, you know, we were taking a break, and I walked out into the hallway, and the Jacksons were down the hall doing their record, and I see Michael Jackson leaning up against the soda machine. And Dave was was out eating, or he was upstairs. I don't know where he was. But I, I walked out there, and the only ones around was me and, and the engineer. So I walked up to Michael. It was right after Off the Wall. It was a triple platinum record, you know. And I said, dude, uh -huh. you know, I introduced myself. And I said, you want to come in and check out what we're doing? Because there was a couple of songs on there that were influenced by the rhythms on that album. You know, so here I am. I got like four songs I wrote on that. I got to get him on this record. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So he You're comes into the studio. A great song, by the way. Say what? My favorite. You're a friend of mine that you wrote. The oh. Album. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Song. Oh, yeah. thank you very much.
Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, I wrote that specifically for David, you know. Yeah, good one. But anyway, Michael comes in, uh, and we put up a song, a track called Save Me. You know, it had all those rhythm, R&B funk rhythms in it. And he starts snapping his fingers in the studio, starts dancing, you know. And I said, dude, there's an open mic out there. Why don't you go out and scat some vocals on there? Uh-huh. He goes, all right, no problem. You know, he goes, I swear to Christ, man. He goes out and puts the earphones on. And he starts singing, scatting over David and myself. And I'm looking at the engineer, and I'm saying, do you believe what's going on here? Yeah. You know? And that's how that happened, you know? So she's telling all her friends She's only young And just begun to see clearly In her eyes Nothing turned out like she thought it would And I was waiting right there where she stood She said, save me From this wicked world I'm living in She said, save me So he comes in, he listens to the playback, and, you know, and admittedly, I said, well, put up another track. He goes, oh, no, no, I got to get going. I said, dude, okay, thanks so much. You know? That's it. And that so was it, but, but I mean, come on. That was awesome, man, you know? Yeah, of course it was awesome. How yeah. long does the whole thing take? How long did that take? Yeah, he's in there, he's in and out in what, an hour? Less. Probably, oh. half, probably 30 minutes. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> That was it. That is wild. That is wild. Amazing. That was amazing. Yeah. I was like, yeah. yeah. I was so I was so floored. I was so excited. Three thirty in the morning. I got the cassette. That, you know, we didn't have that back in the way. I, I got. Yeah. I said, make me a hot number. So I went over to Jim Krieger's house and wrote the song. And I, I woke him up. I said, "You're not going to believe this." You know, Michael Jackson is on the song you wrote with us on the, in the band. He was like flipping out. You know, that is wild. Jim Jim Krieger wrote. We just disagree. By the way. And, Jim was a great talent, and unbelievably, he passed away like 40 years old, the early 40s, oh, you know? Wow. Yeah, yeah man. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's tough. So, I mean, I'm curious for you, is there any kind of, are you make what kind of an adjustment, is it a, an adjustment, I should ask, for you, someone like you who's fronting a band like Vanilla Fudge, to have to switch to being more of, you know, like a sideman or a contributor to somebody else? Well, it, to me, it's fine with you. I'm I'm totally fine with it. You know, I play with a lot of great acts. It's it's a whole another part of your art to be good supporting player. It's just like an actor that has a lead role, and he has a supporting role. I mean, that's the way I look at it. You know, I mean, yeah. it keeps you active, it keeps you out there, and uh, you know, I mean, the Dave Mason thing. I got into the whole L.A. scene with Stephen Stills and. 
great. You know, uh, Timothy B. Schmidt was on the scene, and all the Ryan O'Neills and the Farrah Fawcett's and the, you know, the uh, nice, you know, the uh, Grizzly Adams crowd. I mean, he had sure. this, he had this incredible Mariposa de Auto. He had this fabulous mansion in the Malibu Hills. It would have, it would have been blown away with this house and all these superstars from the Malibu Colony hung out with the band. That was the trend. It was just, nice. you know, that was. It was amazing. It was a great time in my life. Yeah. Uh, we, David, uh, you know, we hired private planes. We used to, we have our own plane, man. We go on to wow. our own rock star plane, you know, not a jet, but like a four engine Viscount. It was sure, incredible. Sure. Get up when you what, want to fly uh, out of a municipal airport. I mean, it was just awesome, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. What, um, tell me a story. Tell me, I mean, did you party with a famous actress? Did you, uh, tell me something. Is there a particular memory that leaps to mind of that time of seeing somebody or hanging out with somebody or a conversation you had or whatever? You know, like Farrah Fawcett and uh, like Brian O'Neill. Well, they wanted me to they wanted me to give uh, you know uh, Griffin O'Neill and and keyboard lessons, but you know, I mean, we're being frank. That's we're on the hustle here. There was so much blow going around in those days, and I got to tell you, that's one thing I am proud to say I pretty much avoided. But it was just so heavy on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. But they were all, you know, I was unbelievable. And, uh, I, I, you know, it was just, I didn't want to be involved in that shit. So I, yeah. I, I kind of passed on that. Good for you. Know. you. Yeah. Griffin, so, is he the one that, did he die of a drug overdose? If he I, don't know, I don't know if he died, but he was, uh, he was heavy into that shit at like 12 yeah. years old. All think, those O'Neill you know? kids have had yeah. just serious drug tr- trouble forever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Okay. Yeah, man. So, so uh, I'm curious what then <laughs> you guys, you know, Vanilla Fudge come out with uh, Mystery in 1984. And yeah, I'm sure that yeah. Ahmed Erdogan may have thought that that was the right time. I can't think of a time less suited for a Vanilla Fudge reunion than at the height of New Wave. But what was going on? What was the thinking then that now was the time to bring Vanilla Fudge back? And how did it work out? Did it was it a well, good experience? Well, you first off, Carmine was doing a benefit for UNICEF in New York City. I forgot the name of the theater. Mm. And it had all these cats come in and uh you know, well, I was in town doing I was doing a lot of commercials. So I happened to be in New York City at the time doing that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um and Vinny Martel was there, and Tim Bogart, you know. So, so what uh-huh. we did, we all we all got together, 
you know, to play. His first time in so long. Okay. And, and the place was packed, and you know, Greg Allman was there, and uh, I remember quite quite clearly. You know what? He comes up to me and he goes, "Mark, it's so good to meet you." He goes, "I got all your albums." <laughs> you know? I said, "Dude, well, obviously more than likewise, you know." Yeah, yeah. May, you know, may rest wow. in peace, you know. No kidding. But uh, so anyway, we went up on stage and we just tore it up. I mean, it was the first time the people went wild. My manager, there were some people from Atlantic, freaked out. The word got out quick, and we went back stage and and this is a perfect time after seeing the band was still so damn good and created such a buzz live so ultimately uh the powers that be got this deal together with atlantic again and we got a really nice deal going and uh the you know and then we we went back home to la and we started writing mm-hmm and we came up with a project called mystery and during the course of the record i mean they were touting it as the next big thing, you know? Really? Yeah. Now, I really I mean, like that album, but mostly because I like the 80s and I like things that sound like 80s music, which that does. Yeah. But it's also, you know, I think it's a fun rock record. I don't know how it was per- perceived or received by anyone. Were you, was it successful overall? Were you managed to do no. tour? No, it, it never even made the charts. You know? Really? Oh. Really. Now, that's the title song, Mystery. Everybody thought that was going to be, you know. Because we were trying to put a fudge approach to the sound at the time, like Phil Collins, Toto, The Police. And we tried to fudge up that kind of, you know, that kind of thing, you know. And yeah. uh, songs like Under Suspicion was really cool, I thought. Yeah. Golden Age Dreams, I thought, was a hit. I mean, they were playing it on KLOS. It sounded like we're gonna, this was going to happen. And then, uh, unfortunately, the bottom line is there was a lot of internal struggles. Huh. And there was there was lawsuits that were brought to bear. Uh, the momentum got killed because of it, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And and the whole damn thing was dropped. I'm not going to get any more specific than that. Okay. okay? okay. But uh, it was just a really ugly, very ugly, ugly time of litigation. And if that didn't happen, you know, Cashbox at the time picked mystery to be a top 20 single okay and that's only only a little couple of there's only maybe four singles that they say that about and the rest they think can make the top 60 so we thought it was going to be a big hit everybody thought so uh you know but um and instead what happens is a band called quiet riot 
Yeah. Nobody, I've, nobody I've ever heard of was recording in the same studio on off time. <laughs> okay. Wow. wow. And we were supposed to have the big album, but I didn't think that album was going to do anything because that kind of rock and roll at the time was not in vogue. Yeah. So Spencer Proffitt comes over to my house in the valley and plays Come On, Fill the Noise and Metal House, and he's playing the shit out of it on my huge system. I said, yeah, it's really rocking, but I don't know. You know, I don't know. Next thing you know, that comes out and becomes the uh, ghost of number one, sells like yeah. seven, eight million copies. So it's the whole heavy metal rage all over again. Isn't that you know? crazy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, ironically, last week, Frankie Pinelli from Quiet Riot was on the cruise with us. Carmine couldn't do the cruise because he's recovering from a medical problem. He's going to be okay. So Good. Frankie sat in, Frankie sat in on shotgun. This place went well. I mean, it was no really cool. way. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, you know. Once again, Vanilla Fudge is influencing something, and the and the benefits or the success is being reaped by somebody else. It's <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, in a way, I guess you know. Yeah, I don't know. It uh, that's a shame. Now, okay, so I have a couple questions about going back. Uh, back in the day. First of all, was Woodstock, Woodstock ever brought up to you guys? It was brought up to us, but we were not getting along at the time. We just did the Seattle Pop Festival. We just did, did another Pop Festival. We didn't know. We thought it was just another festival, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we were playing the opener for B.B. King at the time, you know, in New England, I remember. And, uh, we, you know, things were kind of soured among us. And uh, I went back home and Everybody was going to this place called Woodstock, and the rest is history. What can I tell you? You know, we blew it. We fucked up. You know, <laughs> we could have, we could have done it. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wondered. I mean, you guys would have been right there, right time, right band, right, right. place. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I want to know. I want to hear your uh, your opinion about what it was like being managed by a mobster, because from an outsider's perspective, that sounds terrible. But from what I hear is that they always paid on time, they always took care of everybody, they treated you like gold. What was your experience? Well, pretty much everything you just talked about. You know, back in those days, it wasn't just the fact that you were a popular uh, band. It was who you were hooked up with. So we had we had it from A and B, you know. Yeah. I mean, we, every place we walked into, especially in that area of New York, we were like treated like kings, you know. Yeah. Just like in a movie, Goodfellas, got the front seat, got, you know, get, a, get whatever you want. Whenever you wanted it, you know. <laughs> did they so, ever? Uh, did you ever see anything crazy go down? Anything I saw. I say? saw crazy shit. Yeah, yeah. I've seen crazy shit and heard about crazy shit. Yeah. Let's, you know, what go? What goes to Vegas stays in Vegas, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, so how are things today? I mean, it sounds like uh, you know you're playing the this uh, Legends of Rock cruise. You got your solo stuff working out. Yeah. Um, I mean, are things good? Are you happy? You feeling okay? Possibly? Yeah, I'm feeling great. I'm, I'm, I'm like, good. I feel like I got a rebirth, you know. Good. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm pushing my new band, and uh, I, you know, I think we uh, just got an offer to do the Hippie Fest, you know, and and uh, with maybe Grand Funk, and uh, I don't know, a whole bunch of bands. Excellent. And we got some more offers next year for maybe another Moody Blues cruise, which we've done, and I'm just, uh, you know. Just doing it, you know. Yeah. Just trying to get it going and uh, looking okay. forward to the Westbury thing with the Mark Stein project. And uh, I think we've got some other dates that are coming in the next few days. I would um, imagine at this stage you make a living primarily by playing live, right? That's the only way to make a living and merchandise. Yeah. yeah. 
And merchandise. That's how right. you're making money now. You know? So how many shows a year do you play? Well, I mean, like I said, it was kind of lean the last few years, but I, 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 I really like to play at least 50 shows a year. I mean, that's really? not asking too much. Just about? Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's in clusters, you know, and then you're dead for a month and then, you know. I would but, think uh, you guys would be a big draw at, like, casinos and stuff like that. Well, we, yeah, you would think. <laughs> so would yeah. I. And, and we played. We were on tour with Blue Oyster Cult a lot, you know, yeah. like about a year I and a half ago. I saw Blue Oyster Cult uh, here at a, at a casino outside of Denver two or three years ago, and they were yeah. great. Yeah, they I are great. I totally see you guys doing that. No, we had, it was a good package. We, we played casinos open up and up. It was a good okay. bunch of shows. That's the fact that I became good friends with Buck and Eric. We, we, we go to Denver once in a while. He, you know, he lives in South Florida, so when it was the last time we'll get together and hang a little bit. You know, it's kind of cool. Good. You know, Eric okay. alone. Okay. Well, good. Um, okay. In closing, I have two questions that I ask most people. Number one, I want to know if you have any regrets. What's your biggest regret? My biggest, one... re- my biggest, if I had one thing I could change, it would be an album called The Beat Goes On. <laughs> because that changed the course of, of everybody's future. I, I have to think without a doubt, you know? Yeah. Did you, that, um, I, you couldn't, I mean, you, I would imagine this had to have strained your relationship with Shadow Morton at the time. Did you oh, it did, yeah. We almost, we, we almost got in a fist fight over it. Did you? Know? you? Yeah. You know. Man. When you, so when it's being played back to you, I mean, never mind in the process of making it. When he comes to, you, I imagine you're all sitting in a boardroom maybe with some label executives and someone puts it on the big speakers. Is the whole room just sitting there like, oh, yeah, this is great. We're going to do great with this. Or well, I mean, it, look, you've got to remember that, that was a time of great experimentation, you know. Yeah, true. And I'm an Oregon was into it. All the powers that be thought it was good. We, we were and the verge of creating this whole visual thing to coordinate the whole progression of music for two for two hundred years. Okay. I mean the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. To me, it was like lambs being led to the slaughter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it yeah, was. I could see it. It was just really crazy. You know, I don't know what exactly. to tell you. I mean, I okay. whatever. It's it's you know. That, okay. That's the way it was. Yeah. Well, then tell me what your favorite memory is. Just looking back, I know you played that with so many people. Probably my favorite memory was the Ed Sullivan show right off the top of my head, you know. Really? Hanging hanging out with, you know, being on a show with, like, Flip Wilson, Duke Ellington, I mean, The Temptations, hanging out with the Temps, singing background vocals with them, you know. Dennis Edwards just passed away recently, you know, yeah. lead yeah. singer. That was a highlight and just an incredible instant Visibility it gave you and fame. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you you couldn't walk down the street for like a month after. People always recognized you. Like, you know, it was an amazing feeling, you know. Right. But the fact that your album jumped like 30, 35 points a week, yeah. a week after the show because it, it was incredible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know. Those are the days. Man, nothing, yeah. nothing quite has that impact anymore, does it? Yeah. So it's different now, man. But, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for talking with me, Mark. I have been curious about you and the band for so long, and I've been wanting to get somebody uh, from from the band on the show, and I'm so glad you talked to me. Thanks. Well, I'm happy about it, too. If you really want to find out more, I'm just I'm really trying to sell my book, but it's to keep me hanging on. No, you I should, know. Uh, you should check I, it out because 50 years, it's a, it's a lot of intimate stuff that's in there. It's right. G-rated. It's not X-rated. It's a rock history book, you know. 
I'm not worried so, about that. I just yeah. looked it up. Uh, I didn't even know you had one until maybe last week. Right. And I went on Amazon on my Kindle. Right. And it wasn't available. It wasn't on. No, it's not on Kindle. It's just on a soft cover book. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah. um, and then I thought, well, I mean, I intend to read it, but I thought, well, I'm not going to, it won't be here. I won't get it delivered and read it before talking to you. And so, um, but I'm going to. But yeah, cool. Anyway, I tried. I was hoping to know that well before we could talk, but it, I ran out of time. But anyway, thank you very oh, much for talking to me. Yeah, there's so much more, but. Yeah, you can't encapsulate it all in a short period of time. It was great talking to you. And, uh, Good. And I, Thanks, uh, man. You too. And and I we'll hope look you at make it out here in Colorado sometime. I'll come see you live. I'd love it. Yeah. And just for the record, it was Denver that Led Zeppelin did their first show up in a Vanilla Buzz in 1968, December. Just so you know. <laughs> I didn't know in. that. That's you nuts. didn't? You, no, you I did didn't. know it. I did know that. Yeah. Of course, of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the oh, first yeah. two tours was. Yeah, yeah. All right, buddy. All right. Thanks for talking, Mark. There you have it. Mark Stein. I am so glad we got to tell the Vanilla Fudge story on here. I thought they would be really interesting, you know? What's that like? I mean, you're famous for doing this very unique thing, which is taking pop songs and completely reworking them to make them your own. But technically, because they're covers... You know, someone else is reaping the most of the financial benefit from that. Although they shouldn't, because... They're transforming these songs so completely that don't you get some extra credit for that? I just thought that would be a really interesting story to learn. So thank you, Mark, for talking to me. Uh, his book is You Keep Me Hanging On. Go check that out and go to VanillaFudge.com. You can find out all their dates uh, headlining Hippie Fest. It's a tour going out with, there's Mitch Ryder on there, there's Badfinger. It's really fascinating. I wish it was coming to Denver. I'd totally go. Anyway check out Hippie Fest. And a huge thank you to Annie Layton for help set this up. Annie's been behind some of our, some of our other guests like John Hall and Ian Anderson. So thank you so much for helping us out here, Annie. We really appreciate it. Now, as I've mentioned before, we are focusing for the next few weeks on very uniquely American acts. Okay? And we're going way back to about the same time period as Vanilla Fudge with next week's guest. It's a singer who is among the top 50, according to Billboard magazine, top 50 most played artists of all time. And uh, I guess I could say one of their so one of his songs is basically a standard, and it came from a movie. So that's what I'll, those are the tips I will tell you for next week's guest. I'm really excited about it. I hope you guys will come back and join us. Now, you know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at, gmail, at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, huge thank you, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for putting everything together. Thank you, buddy. We put out new episodes every Tuesday. We will talk to you next week with our special guest. We'll talk to you then.